Well, this morning we are going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in the pew in the front of you, um, as uh, we have some Bibles there. We are uh, looking at the whole topic of widows, and even though I didn't plan to have this happen on Mother's Day, um, there will be a lot of things in this um, section of Scripture that will apply to you mothers, and I hope will be a blessing and encouragement and just a motivation for you to excel still more. Throughout history, we've learned that the, the Bible has... Um, always emphasize the care of widows. There's always been in every society certain needy people, um, the sick, the homeless, orphans, widows, um, people who just can't take care of themselves. And, and God has a very s- strong concern that His people take care of those widows and people who are within their grasp to take care of. And as we noted last week, the Bible um, constantly gives uh, exhortations, uh, even laws in the Old Testament about how widows were to be treated and not to be treated. And uh, there's nothing different even in the New Testament. As Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy obviously had some widows in his congregation who were who were, who were there, and he was wondering, so what do I do with them all? Um, and he must have asked Timothy this question, or Paul this question, and so Paul writes to Timothy to say, well, let me tell you. And he, exp- he spends more time on this single subject than pretty much any other subject um, in the whole book, except the general s- subject of leadership and uh, all of this applies in a, a general way to leadership. But, but in this section, this is a very large section just addressing widows. What are we to do with widows? And so please follow along as I read 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16. We will summarize some of what we learned last week, and then we will press on from there. But starting at verse 3 of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, and if she has shown hospitality to strangers, and if she has washed the saints' feet, and if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, 
as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer, has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now notice there is kind of a bookends on each, uh, on this whole section, 3 through 16. Honor widows who are widows indeed in the last part of verse 16, that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Everything in the middle is talking about widows and specifically contrasting two specific groups that Paul mentions, those who are widows and those that he describes as widows indeed. And he categorizes them, I think, for two um, specific reasons. The first reason is, is some widows were to not be put on the list, and some were. What list is that? The list to be honored by receiving financial support from the church. The church had to support widows. There is no doubt about it. And even if they didn't qualify as a widow indeed, the church would still help them out. It's not that those who were on the list were the only ones who received support. For instance, there might be a widow who is very needy. The church, of course, would help anyone in need, including a widow. But there were certain widows that were to be considered worthy of being put on a a list, a special list, because they couldn't provide for themselves. And so Paul lists the qualifications or the criteria by which Timothy can say, okay, this group of widows... We can help when they have need. This group of widows, we will help as a regular pattern, as a continual thing in the church. And so that was the main question Timothy seems to have asked Paul. What widows should receive regular financial support? And the whole context, as you read through here, is all about who's going to support these widows. Because it was a very big deal. Back then, they didn't have Social Security. They didn't have you know Medicare and Medicaid. And they didn't have uh, life insurance. And oftentimes, a, a woman's husband would die and she would be left all alone. Sometimes she would have children and she would have to take care of her children. And sometimes she would even have dependent widows of her own, including her children, that she would then be forced to trap to take care of. And so Paul is laying out in a very detailed way how to address all of these different kinds of widows. Now, as you go through the text, Paul bounces back and forth between widows and widows indeed and families of widows and children of widows and and church in general and the leadership. And so what we have done is we've decided to break down this whole section into six categories of information and we're addressing each category. So although we are not going through the text verse by verse, we will cover every verse in the text eventually as we answer these questions. The questions were these, six of them. What does it mean to honor a widow indeed? Secondly, what makes a widow a widow indeed? Third, what are widows who are not widows indeed responsible to do? Fourth, what are all widows responsible not to do? Five, what are family members responsible to do for their widows? And six, what is 
the church, and specifically the leadership of the church, responsible to do in relationship to widows. Now, as you answer all of these questions, you are able to cover all of these um, verses, verses 3 through 16. And so what we're doing is we're working our way, we're answering these questions. And the first question we answered last week, what does it mean to honor a widow indeed? Now, we learned that this word honor has basically two different um, ways it's used in the Bible. The first way is to show respect. You, you honor somebody, um, you, you treat them with reverence, with respect, um, with honor. And uh, that is one way. It describes an attitude that we would have towards somebody who is special, um, special privilege, a special position, a, a special place, that we would give them honor, have an attitude of reverence and respect for them. But there is another way which includes all of those same attitudes, but also includes financial or material support or sacrifice. You remember we talked about Solomon and the Queen of Sheba who came to honor him. And when she came to honor him, she gave him this huge amount of spices and gold and all sorts of material possessions. And this is how it's often used in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, in the near context of verse 17, it talks about elders, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching, of being worthy, considered worthy of double honor. And Paul, of course, is talking about um, paying the preacher so that he can study and preach. And so when it talks about honoring widows indeed, it's talking about giving them financial support. Now, we looked at that. Then we looked at the second major question, which was, what makes a widow a widow indeed? And this was the second big question. So, okay, we're to honor widows indeed, but this brings up a whole bunch of other questions, so who's, who qualifies? And so Paul answers and gives the qualifications in verse 5 and verses 9 and 10. If you look at verse 5, Paul says, first of all, Now, she who is a widow indeed, who has been left all alone. This is the first criteria. She is left all alone. And what Paul means by that is she has no immediate family, no extended family, no one to take care of her. No in-laws, no outlaws, whatever. None. She is all alone. She is all alone. That is the first criteria. Secondly, if you look at verse 5, she must be a woman who has fixed her hope on God. She is a woman who hopes or waits or trusts in God. That's what it's talking about. She is not a fretter. She is not anxious and worrying and fretting all the time. She is characterized as a confident trust, a hope that has been fixed upon God, and that is the character of her life. Third, she must be, also in verse 5, a woman who is characterized as continuing in entreaties and prayers day and night. She is like the prophetess Anna in Luke 2, who was in the temple and she prayed night and day. This is the character of this widow indeed. Now, in verses 6 through 8... The text addresses what widows are not to be, what leaders are to do, what families are to do. And then in verses 9 and 10, we are given eight more characteristics or criteria used to determine if a widow is to be considered a widow indeed and put on the list to receive regular financial support from the church. 
Now, we found the fourth criteria at the beginning of verse 9. Again, this is all review. If you want more detail, you can get the tape from last week. The text says she must not be less than 60 years old. This was considered at that time um, the age when you started getting old, I guess, um, which for some of you is an encouragement because you're still considered young. Um, Others, you are now old, according to the text, and you are over 60. But... This does not mean that because a widow would have to be over 60, that somebody under 60 would not get support. Again, I'm not saying this text is promoting any sort of uh, neglect of anybody who is a believer in the church, who is faithful. um, But this text is saying there is a distinction, a biblical discrimination to be made. We used an example last week of of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, where, where Paul says, listen, if a person does not work, then don't let him eat. Do not feed them. That is a biblical discrimination. That is, when someone is unwilling to obey God by working hard to support themselves, you do not feed them. And so there is some discrimination here between these who would be put on the list because of their age, because of their need, and those who would not. Now, we're going to talk about that more next week, but let's move on to the sixth characteristic found in verse 10. She must have a reputation for good works. A reputation for good works. Uh, Actually, this is verse 10. Notice at the front of the verse, it says she must have a reputation for good works. And notice at the end of the verse, it says that she has devoted herself to every good work. And you may be thinking, did he stutter? Why does he say this twice? Well, it's because he uses two different words for good in this text. At the beginning of the verse, he describes... This woman as a woman with a reputation for good works. And the word good there is the word kalas, a word that means externally good, observably good, good in appearance, noble in appearance. And she is to be a woman who is characterized as a woman that you can look at and say, you know, that woman's following the Lord. That woman is serving the Lord. That woman has excellent character. You can see it in her life. He used a different word for good, which we'll get to in a little bit. So she must be that kind of woman also. Observably good, noble, and excellent. The seventh criteria found in verse 10 is she must have a reputation of having brought up children. And this, again, is not just feeding children. It's not just, you know, most women will feed their children. It's talking about bringing them up in a godly way in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Even pagan women feed their children. But what this is talking about is she is distinguished because she has obeyed, you know, the command of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. Do you remember that command? It's not just directed at wives, but to parents in general. And when Moses is giving the law, this is what he says about their training of their children. You shall talk of them talking about the commandments of God, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, every godly mother must seek to do that. When you're getting up, when you're getting down, when you're sitting down, when you're standing up, when you're inside the house, when you're outside the house, the godly mother seeks to take the word of God and bring it into every situation into her child's life, into school, into play, into work, into seeing people in need and people in rebellion. You're constantly taking the word of God that you have been studying faithfully and saying, you know, the Bible says this, God is this way. Why do you think God allows this? And making your kids have a worldview so they strain everything through 
the filter or a grid of God and His Word. We talked about a while back that the goal of parenting is basically threefold. Teach your children the Word of God. Teach them how to obey the Word of God and teach them how to be independent of you and dependent upon God. And of course, salvation would be included in there, but you can't save your child. You can only feed them the Word of God. You want your child to grow up learning God's Word, learning how to obey God's Word, and then hopefully becoming less dependent upon you and more dependent on God so that every decision is made thinking about God. That when they are in high school and they come to you and they say, you know, I don't know what I should do here, you can say, well, what does God's Word say? And they can say, well, God's Word says that, so what do you think God wants you to do? You want to train them to rely upon God so when they become adults and move out of the home that they are living for God and by God's word. And that's what it talks about when it says she has brought up children. So that is review. That's a review we looked at last week. Now, the eighth criteria we find in verse 10, and uh, we'll slow down here a little bit. Notice the qualification that says... Not only having a reputation for good works, not only if she has brought up children, but also if she has shown hospitality to strangers. Again, this was something that we saw in the qualifications of elder, wasn't it? They have to show hospitality to strangers. Now, if you weren't here when we preached on that, what what does that mean, this whole hospitality? Does that mean, you know, subscribing to Martha Stewart or Better Homes and Gardens and, you know, learning how to weave your own pea trellises or whatever? I mean, what is this hospitality thing? Well, in the early church, remember, there wasn't a lot of hotels and motels and places for people to stay. So you would walk places. That's how you get places. Or, you know, sometimes in a very rare instance, if you were wealthy, you might have, you know, camels or horses or donkeys. But mostly you would just walk. That's how people got around. And if you were walking from, you know, one place to another and it was, you know, let's say 60 miles, um, you know, you might be able to get 15, 20 miles in a day. But as you walked... At the end of the day, no hotel, no motel. You would be at the mercy of other people to take you in. Otherwise, you'd sleep under a bush. And you may think, well, you know, that doesn't seem very fun. Well, it wasn't very fun. You know, you think, well, why don't they take a tent with them? Well, they didn't have a Suburban. (laughs) They're carrying everything on their back. And, you know, for those of you who have done a little hiking, you know, you get over 25, 35 pounds in your back. It's painful, especially when you're walking in a very hot place. And so people relied upon other people's generosity and to bring them in and feed them and take care of them so they can continue on in their journey. That's basically what this is talking about. But it especially, as you study the New Testament, would refer to other believers who are traveling around, that you would take care of those believers who were traveling about. And, of course, that's how the disciples, that's how Paul um, survived a lot of the time, was by the hospitality and generosity of other people. God commands this, and he doesn't just command this for widows indeed, and not just for elders but for everyone, everyone. And you need to ask yourself, 
Do I practice hospitality? In other words, the principle we would take away from here, since we do have hotels and motels and we have planes and cars and we get around, is am I using my house to minister to other people? Whether it be ministering to strangers or having people over or whatever. Do you do that? I mean, this last month, the last two months, the last year, have you had people over? Have you fed them? I mean, this is not just something that is, well, you know, widows indeed need to do this, but the rest of us don't have to. Listen to what Romans 12, verses 10 through 13 says. Now, this is speaking to all believers, and Paul says this. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligent diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. You read a verse like that, those three verses, and you may think, you know, Jack, that almost sounds identical to everything the widow indeed is supposed to be. Bingo. This isn't saying the widow indeed is to be this different kind of person. The text is saying the widow indeed is to be like every Christian is to be. And we're going to talk about that more in a a little bit. But back to hospitality, all of us are to practice hospitality. And if you look at your life right now and you're saying, well, I don't do that. I don't have anybody in my house. Well, sometimes it's because you don't want to, you know, if you're a bachelor, you don't want to scrub the mold out of the shower. You know if they came in, you'd be embarrassed there because you have a good mold garden in the bathroom and, you know, you'd have to clean it. Or maybe you don't want to dust on top of your refrigerator when tall people come over like me and I look up there and go, whoa. (laughs) So you don't have anybody over. But God commands you to be hospitable, to use your house to minister to other people. There are people in this church who are constantly having people over to their house. I know this for a fact. People that they've never had before. You know, so often we can just travel in our own little circles and have our own little group and minister to, quote, our own little selves. And we have the people we're comfortable with that are fun with and we have them over and no one else and us four and no more. We need to practice hospitality. I don't care if you have an apartment. I don't care if you have a huge mansion. We need to practice hospitality. Look for groups, you know. Have the junior hires over. They would be glad to trash your house. (laughs) They're good. I've had them over to my house and nothing was broken. Have the college students over. Have the single people over. Have a group of the seniors over. Have the choir people over. Have them over. Have them over to your house. You know, so often we... We, you know, want to do something, you know, what's there to do? We get a little bored, we got a little free time, and we think, you know, well, let's go do something. And you, you leave home, and you go, and you pay somebody to entertain you, and it's all about you, it's about me, it's about getting what you want for yourself so you can feel good. Well, the next time you start feeling that way, start thinking like this, you know, let's call some people up. Let's have them over to our house. Let's feed them and minister to them. Let's talk about the Lord. Let's share our testimonies. Let's, let's be a church. And when all the church begins to do this, then the church becomes very healthy because you get to know people. When you know people, you care for them. But so many people withdraw and their home becomes their own little fortress that they hide away with. But God says all people, not just widows, not just elders, every Christian is to practice hospitality. And of course, this widow indeed would have a reputation of doing this. The ninth criteria, also found in verse 10, look there. 
She must have a reputation for having washed the saints' feet. Now, when was the last time you did this? I must confess, I have not done this. I mean, I've washed my kids' feet. But you're thinking, well, how do we do this? Well, part of it is you need to understand why they washed feet. And what, what, what this meant to wash somebody's feet. In the New Testament times, you didn't have, you know, cars you drove around when. You know, you have clean cars that you drive on asphalt and concrete roads and go into concrete parking lots and walk on concrete walkways into houses full of carpet. You would, you would be walking around on dirt all day in sandals, dusty dirt. You would be hot, you would be sweaty, and of course all that dirt would cling to your feet. And when you came to somebody's house, it would look like you had been walking on, in dust all day because you were. And all that dust would just cling to your feet and the lower part of your legs like, you know, flies to flypaper. And that was just how it is. And so if you were a very well-to-do person, you would have your servants wash people's feet. But in the normal case, the woman of the house would humble herself and say, oh, you know, hi, we're glad you're here. Please have a seat. Get a big bowl, put their feet and wash off your feet. And it was an act of humble service to you. I am... I want to serve you. I want to welcome you to my home. And so they would humble themselves. You remember Jesus did this. Remember in John 13 what happened? You know, they they got the upper room all prepared and all the disciples who had been discipled by Jesus those three years and were really godly. They were all up in the room and they're all laying down and reclining and thinking, you know, if somebody comes in here and washes my feet, you know, do we have a servant around here? They did have a servant, didn't they? Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and give his life a ransom for many. And the Lord of glory humbled himself, got a bull while all the disciples were sitting around. And you can imagine the shame heaped upon them at that moment. When not one of them had thought in their hearts, you know, I could wash people's feet right now. I could be a humble servant. But they were all so proud and all so special because they had been chosen to walk around with Jesus that they couldn't bring themselves to stoop down. And so God incarnate washed their dirty feet, leaving them an example, Jesus said, to follow. And so even though we have clean roads and shoes and cars and things like that to get around with. The principle to take away from this is be willing to serve other people even in humble capacities. You know, you should not be so mighty and so privileged that you cannot serve somebody else to help them move or help them do some task or minister to them in some way. We all need to be humble servants and being a servant is required of everybody, not just widows indeed. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11 and 12? Let me remind you. He says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The way to greatness in God's kingdom is to serve the most. The more you serve the greater you are in the kingdom of heaven. The more you are served, the least. God calls you to be a servant. So a widow 
who did not have the reputation of being a humble servant, of doing the lowliest of tasks like washing feet, would not be considered worthy to be put on this list. She would not be a woman who exemplified Christianity. Tenth, she must have the reputation of assisting those in distress, also found in verse 10. She would be like one of those grandmothers, you know, that if you skin your knee or fall down and, you know, she gets out the boo bunny. Do you have a boo bunny? Some of you probably have boo bunnies. When we grew up, actually, when my kids grew up, we had this little terry cloth rabbit with the little frozen thing in the middle of it. Kept it in the freezer. And then when our kids would fall down, we'd get out the boo bunny. And they would fall down. Can we have the boo bunny? And so we would minister to their little hurts. And there are people in the church like that. They're constantly ministering to other people. And you know who they are because when you get hurt, you go to them. Because they have your reputation for being helpful, for having resources, for being kind, for having wise words. Again, and though this is a necessary quality of one who is to be considered worthy to put on this list, all of us are to be like the Good Samaritan, are we not? And help those in distress. This is the character and quality of every believer. Not just a certain group. We all need to be this way. And so you need to ask yourself, do you help those in distress? Do you have a reputation of being a helper of others? And granted, we have doctors and we have hospitals and we have, you know, plumbers and, and carpenters and, and people we often pay to come and assist us, you know, when our roof caves in or whatever. But not all people have the resources to be able to do that. And that's when we need to assist other people when they can't assist themselves. But some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have a reputation like that. I mean, I'm always the one in distress. You know, I'm always the one in need. I have to call for help. You know, I, when I think back, all I can think of is, well, I called this person a week ago and that person two weeks ago and this person three weeks ago and then before that it was that person again. So many of us, when we get in distress, we become receivers and only receivers. And we buy a lie that tells us that when we are hurting, when we are under trial, when we are suffering, we have to stop ministering to others and we only minister to ourselves. But that is a lie. That is a lie. And things might need to change in your life. Sometimes you find yourself needy. We all are that way at times. And we, we get entangled in things, things we didn't ask for. Things we didn't call for, but things that God, by His providence, brings into our life. And man, we're needy. We, we need help. But most of the time I discover that people have needs because they entangle themselves in the consequences of their own bad decisions. And then they come, hurting. And these are the people who can change who can make different choices, who can untangle themselves by getting wise counsel, by obeying God, and stop suffering continually the consequences of their own bad choices. 
You see, being able to help others in distress does not mean that you will not be in distress yourself. Don't think of this as there are those who help people in distress and those who are in distress. Think of it as everybody's in distress and some people minister to others while they're in distress and others don't. You see, the godlier you are, the more you grow in Christ, the more what you get? Persecution. The more affliction. I mean, you just read it in the Bible. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, I send you out like sheep among wolves. They're going to rip you apart. You will encounter tribulation. Through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's standard for being a follower of God because the prince of the power of the air, Satan, hates the followers of God. But think about this. Think about this. When you are under distress, does it incapacitate you so you quit ministering to others? You think that's a legitimate excuse? Think about the Apostle Paul. Was Paul ever afflicted? Did Paul ever suffer trials? Was Paul ever hurting? All the time. Listen to how he describes himself in 2 Corinthians 4. He describes his life, his life as an apostle, as one of the greatest ministers of all time. In these words, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always Caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now, right there, he says this. We're afflicted. We're persecuted. We're under perpetual and continual trial. We are always carrying about in us the dying of Jesus because we are standing up for him as ambassadors. But then notice he says that even though they're constantly redoing this, what's happening? The life of of Jesus is also manifested in them. In other words, they keep ministering. Verse 11 says, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The life of Jesus may be manifested. What life is that? Eternal life. The life of obedience and devotion to God. Paul's trials didn't stop him from ministering. I mean, he wrote most of his letters from prison. And he barely even mentions that he's even in prison, that he's even in suffering. He's still ministering. And you ask yourself, how can that be? How can you suffer so much and still minister? It's because... Affliction is not an excuse to disobey God's call on your life to obey Him in any area. You you don't have a, a ticket to pass go in obedience, no matter what happens to you. It's learning as you grow in Christ to give your burdens to the Lord. Yes, reach out to other people and have them help you, but to still, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your affliction, to keep ministering to other people. Why? Because it's more blessed to give than what? Receive. 
You may think in your mind and Satan may convince you in your mind that, oh, I'm so needy that I would really be helped if just people just kept ministering to me and I just sat home and they just catered to my every need. The fact of the matter is, if you really want to be happy, if you really want to find joy, if you really want to find contentment, even in the midst of your trials, learn how to serve God diligently and selflessly in the midst of your trial. Listen to how Paul, later on in 2 Corinthians, describes his ministry. It's interesting because they're attacking him as an, saying, oh, he's not an apostle, he's a false apostle, he's greedy, he's a womanizer, he's, and they've given all these false accusations. So he's going to defend himself. Now, in order to defend himself, he doesn't say, well, hey, I want you to know, I'm a Pharisee, I've studied the law, and you know, I've memorized a thousand verses of the Old Testament. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, well, you know, I want you to know, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, and you know what? Not only that, I want you to know this. I had a vision. I had several visions. He doesn't say, hey, I was trained by Gamaliel. He doesn't appeal to any of that. What he appeals to is the volume of his suffering. Now, that is very strange, isn't it? I mean, how would you defend yourself if somebody said, well, you know, you aren't in your profession? Would you talk about the volume of your suffering? Well, that's where Paul goes and listen to what he says. These are his credentials as an apostle. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. And in all of these things that he listed here and many more he did not list, He planted churches all around the Mediterranean basin, wrote most of the epistles of the New Testament, and did huge amounts of ministry. Now, I say this because some of you have bought the lie that when you're hurting, you're going to shut down for God. Don't do it. Find that there is great healing in giving yourself away even when you're hurting even when you're hurting. You need to all have a reputation, we all do, of being a fresh spring that people want to seek out for a fresh drink. It's a qualification that every widow indeed must have, a reputation of helping those in distress, even though she herself, just by the nature of her being a widow, is being in distress. Now what about the eleventh and final principle? For our widow indeed, look at the end of verse 10. We've alluded to this already. She must have a reputation of having devoted herself to every good work. Paul here uses a different word for good. He doesn't use kalos, external observable good. He uses agathos, which is good in effect. Good that can be seen in how it affects, in this case, mostly other people. 
you might paraphrase this like this. She must be a woman who has a reputation of having devoted herself to every good work, and the proof of these good works is evident in that they have had a lasting beneficial effect on other people. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Does that describe all of us? We are all to do this, right? You look back on your life, do you see a string of people in the wake of your life which have grown in the faith because of you? Do you see people who have come to the Lord because of your faithful witness? Do you see people who have got over circumstances because of your wise counsel? Do you see people who have grown in knowledge and grace because of your faithful discipleship? This is what it's talking about. That the wake of your life What comes behind you is a legacy of having had a beneficial effect on other people. It is these kind of widows who would be put on the list as continually supported by the church. Now, what does God say a widow indeed is? She is all alone and has no family to take care of her. She has fixed her hope on God. She prays day and night. She is not less than 60 years old. She was faithfully devoted to her husband, has a reputation for good works, which can be seen by others. She has raised God-fearing children, has practiced hospitality as a humble servant to others. She assists those in distress. She devotes herself to every good work, which produces life-changing results in the lives of other people. And I'm sure none of us are thinking, is that all? That is pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Now, we have seen other lists like this, haven't we? Elders, deacons, big lists. This is another one. And sometimes we can look at these lists and we can think, no way, no way. That is just way Way too scrutinizing. That's way too narrow. narrow. That's virtually unattainable. I mean, who could... This woman sounds like the Proverbs 31 woman whose husband has died. I could never attain to such a height as that. Well, listen. There's a couple character traits here for widows indeed, which widows, anybody, could not really have any control over you can't help it if you're over 60 now some people would like to be able to help that but they can't and you can't help it if you've been left all alone these things are out of your control but every other thing mentioned all the other nine characteristics are very much your responsibility to pursue by the grace of god not only are they your responsibility, they are commanded of you, and not only are they commanded of you, they're commanded of everybody in the church. I mean, think about it. Is any of us excluded from fixing our hope on God? Are we not all to continue in entreaties and prayers day and night? Are we not all who are married to be devoted faithfully to our spouse in all purity? Are we not to bring up children In the fear and discipline of the Lord, are we not to show hospitality to strangers? Are we not all to be humble servants and assist those in distress and to devote ourselves to every good work? Yes. Why? Because these are the qualities of a Christian. Not superwoman. This is the standard 
normal behavior of a mature believer in Jesus Christ. And people, I'm telling you, uh, you go through things like this, and I've experienced this already. Um, you, you start preaching through different lists and the scriptures, and people come up to you like, well, you know, whoa, whoa. I mean, that was really convicting, but man, no one could ever do that. And we just want to kind of rationalize and justify and bring the standard down and down and down to, well, pretty soon in our minds it just means make a mediocre effort and we'll call her good. But that's not what God's Word says. And God's Word has not changed. The standard is here and it will always be here and all of us must rise to the standard, not our own standard, our own tweaked and adjusted standard. This is the Word of God and we must all submit to the Word of God. And you may just think, well, Jack, it's too hard. Well, it's too hard in the flesh. It would be too hard if you didn't know Christ. It would be too hard if you didn't rely on the things God has given you like His Word and prayer and the fellowship of the saints, and serving, and spiritual gifts. Yes, it would be impossible. But God never calls you to attain to anything that you cannot attain to. He calls us all to these standards, huge standards, but attainable standards because it is not by strength, it is not by might, but it is by what? It's God's Spirit and His grace that help us attain to these things. And His grace is sufficient for you. Think about it. If the Lord were to tell you, listen, I want you to go move this mountain over there. Here's a spoon. Use this spoon. And you're looking at the mountain and you're thinking, man, that's giant. I mean, if I really dug hard all my life, I don't know if... I'm sure I couldn't move that mountain. But if he was your Lord and you loved him and you wanted to submit to him... You would diligently use that spoon to try and dig away that mountain. And when you died and you stood before him, you could say, listen, I, I wore out my spoon and I wore out my back and I wore out my time and I did everything I could to try and move that mountain, but I couldn't get it all moved. Think you'd be okay with that? Or do you think it would be better for you to say, you know, the mountain is so huge. It's so giant and obviously I cannot move it with this spoon. And so just wait until you stand before the Lord and say, hey, here, here is your spoon, bright and shiny as the day you gave it to me. I thought, you know, why get it scratched trying to do something that was impossible? So here's your spoon back. Uh, I just put it in a cloth case and now it's yours. I mean, who would dare do that? The task of growing in spiritual maturity is formidable, but grace is more formidable. You may think, well, gosh, Jack, you know, these qualifications, they're average Christianity, normal Christianity. Do not believe the lie that you cannot attain to what God has called you to. That is a lie from the pit. It does not come from God. And God does not give you a spoon. He gives you spiritual backhoes and earth movers and dynamite. He gives you His Word. He gives you the Holy Spirit, God, living in you. 
He gives you the fellowship of the saints. He gives you spiritual gifts. He gives you so many things that just radically transform your life. The problem is, is we just, all we hear is, oh, it's too big, it's too big. And we, Satan doesn't want us to remind us of, you know, all the resources we have in Christ. He just wants to remind us of the hugeness of the task. The task is huge, but the resources are sufficient. Some of you may be thinking out there, but Jack, I want you to know, when I look back at my life, and I see where I've been and where I've come. I am not this kind of person. I have not seen godliness increase in my life. And, you know, I mean, I've gone to church faithfully, but I just, I just don't see it. I don't see that continual growth. I don't see that continual upward progress in godliness. Well, that's usually a good indication that you probably don't know Christ. I'm not saying you don't know about Christ. I don't say you don't know anything about the Bible. Many people can come to church and, and get a good education about the Bible and Christianity and hear a lot of good things. They can profess with their mouth that they're Christians. Many do. Many want to be saved. Many want to go to heaven. I haven't really found anybody who said, you know, I want to go to hell. People want that. But what people don't want, which keeps them from truly being saved, is they don't want a king over their life. They don't want a master. They don't want a lord. They don't want to be a servant. They want to have it their way. They want to do their own thing. Yet, they're willing to give God some of their life Go to church, read the Bible, do some religious activities. But in their heart, they've never really repented of their sins and turned to follow Christ. They still have a fortress inside of them. We are not Christians because we claim to be Christians, because we say we are saved. No, we are Christians because God's grace has granted us repentance, has caused us to turn from our sin, has opened our heart to see the truth of the gospel. And because of that, we have received Jesus Christ and been regenerated and changed into new creatures. We have been born again. We have been transformed. And if you look at your life and there's no transformation, there's no new creature, you just look back and see the same old creature, then something's wrong. Because the Bible says that God, once He begins a work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And if you don't see the work being perfected, then it might be you've never started growing because you've never really come to true faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not acquired by saying, but by believing that Jesus died for your sins. That he was buried and rose again on the third day. And that by you placing your faith in what Christ accomplished on your behalf, because you realize you are a sinner, that you are under the judgment of God, and that you need his righteousness given to you because you can't do it in your own power, then you'll see change. And you become like the people mentioned in this text. These widows indeed. Like elders. Like deacons, people of godly character. 
There are many who are convinced, so convinced, that they are saved because they have had a long-term association with the church. Cultists have a long-term association with cults, but it doesn't save them. But yeah, I've come to church and sometimes your pride will get in the way and it'll get, a, get in your way all the way to hell. Because you, you, you're thinking to yourself, well, if I actually humble myself, if I actually repent, people are going to find out and they're going to know I've been a hypocrite. Well, that's not Christ talking. That is Satan trying to keep you from humbling yourself before the Lord and coming to salvation. Pride can well up in a person who has sat in a pew for so many years that they just become settled in their lees and they rust in unrepentance right in the pew. And they are like those poor and pathetic people who in Matthew 7, Jesus describes as when they stand before the Lord and they're all thinking, man, I was in church and I knew who Jesus was and I did all these good works and Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That is a scary thing. These people were in church. These people knew Jesus. These people were serving, but they never gave their heart to the Lord. Whether you are a widow or not, today is always the day of salvation. Salvation is to be had today and can only be had today. Do not put it off until tomorrow. There is no greater calling on earth than being God's servant, to be saved, to be sanctified, and eventually to be glorified. And yes, God's calling is extremely high. There is no other calling that is, has a standard as high as that of being a follower of Christ, but grace is sufficient. And some of you are frustrated because you don't see God's grace working in your life and you're wondering what is wrong because God's grace is not working in your life because you've never really given your heart to Christ. I mean given your heart to Christ. And if that is you today, I would encourage you, beg you, exhort you, command you as the scriptures do to repent and turn towards God and just give yourself to Christ fully and completely today and do not wait and do not delay. Some of you are Christians, and yet you're still in the back of your mind. You're going, Jack, I, I know it says this in the Word, and I know that I know that the standard's high, but, and that but just gets in there because you just can't quite bring yourself to admit that you could be a normal, average Christian who follows God faithfully. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we'll just close with this verse. Deuteronomy 30. Here, Moses is just given the blessings and the curses. He has talked about them after receiving the curse. And look at verse 2 of Deuteronomy 30. He says, And when you return to the Lord... And obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you today and your sons. Look at verse 10. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments, his statutes, which are written in the book of the law. If you turn to the Lord your God, that is repent with all your heart and soul. 
So often we think of the law of Moses. I mean, not, we aren't talking about this little list here, 11 things. We're talking about the law of Moses as this huge burden that no one could ever keep. Well, they could not keep it perfectly, but they could keep it. There were people described in the Old Testament as blameless and upright and fearing God. And you, sometimes we think, well, no, no you, you, you can't do this. Well, let's just look at what God says. Let's say we were in the Old Testament, and we were under the law of Moses, and we were under the blessing and curses, and you did have all these things, way, way, way more things than you could imagine. Look at verse 11. This is God speaking. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. That's God's commentary on the law of Moses. And it's grasp within the grasp of every believer. So as we come today and we look at widows and especially the qualifications of widows indeed, may we all leave here realizing that widows indeed were to only be what all of us were to be which is godly Christians following the Lord with a whole heart and a willing mind. And if some of you look at your life and you just don't see those characteristics in your life, it's probably because you don't know Christ. And I would beg you, I command you, as the Scriptures tell me to command you, to repent and believe in Christ and be saved. And maybe today will be the first day that you're able to leave here equipped with everything you need to be everything God wants you to be. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're thankful that the standard that you have given us forces us to trust in you. If it was easy, if it was simple, we would be tempted to be boastful, prideful, and think we could achieve it on our own. But your calling is high. Yet your grace is sufficient. Father, for those here who might not know you, I pray. I pray that you would grant them repentance. That you would open their hearts. That you would show them the truth. That they would see clearly for the first time that they are sinners. That you are just. That your son died in the cross for all those who would believe in him for eternal life. And Father, that if they repent and believe and receive your son, you will grant them eternal life and you will begin to change them from one glory into the next. For those who do know you, Father, I pray that all of us would examine our lives. That we would dispel any of those lies that maybe the culture or other believers or Satan have duped us into believing that your standard is too high. Father, may we all seek to be normal Christians, Christians who obey you and follow you faithfully. We pray this in your name. Amen.